Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, sitting here in my home studio in Oxford and joined by my beloved co-host Octavia Bright from London. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing today? Hi, Carrie. <laughs> I'm waving at you like a lunatic yeah, on FaceTime. Yeah, no, it looks great. It's really nice. Um, I'm, you seem to be dancing and waving. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm moving my Same. entire it's body. Shaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm okay. I I saw some very beautiful hydrangeas on my walk this morning, and they brought an enormous bolt of joy into my life. Um, they're completely mad. They're so maximalist you know and like luxurious which is actually come to think of it kind of a handy little segue don't you think (laughs) wow you're amazing (laughs) yeah I love hydrangeas um I have been trying to grow them for the last three years with mixed results but I do have a hydrangea plant in the garden that has a few large healthy pink blossoms and I'm feeling very grateful for that this right is now it this is joy. perseverance that's exactly yeah. right are they quite yeah. are they quite hard to grow no <laughs> <laughs> I think they need a lot of water maybe mm. I don't know I should do more research about this maybe this is the problem but I mean Google's probably a friend you know yeah what is your friend gardener's question time mm. I've never got there am I at the stage of no, my life yet, I haven't though. got there yet yeah. either but I, I hear it's good yeah I've heard it in the car. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But yes, as you so subtly and pleasingly teased earlier, we are going to be talking about luxury in literature today. And no, we don't mean rich people having spa days or flying first class. Instead, we're going to be talking about writing that engages with the aesthetic, opulent, baroque, and decadent. And those are all quite opulent words themselves, aren't they? Yeah, they're fun to say. Through writers including Oscar Wilde, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Niven Govindan, we'll be thinking about things like what it means to write luxuriously and why engaging with luxury can be an act of resistance for marginalized communities. Our guest today is Shola von Reinhold, whose debut novel, Lote, is about present-day narrator Matilda's fixation with the forgotten Black Scottish modernist poet Hermia Druitt, but also a meditation on aesthetics and beauty and who is allowed to access them. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about Shola, Octavia? I sure can, Carrie. Shola von Reinhold is a Scottish socialite and writer. Shola has been published in the Cambridge Literary Review, the Stockholm Review, was Cove Park's Scottish Emerging Writer in 2018 and recently won a Dewar Award for Literature. Shola is a recent graduate from the Creative Writing MLIT at Glasgow, which was completed through the Jessica Yoke Writing Scholarship and has previously studied fine art at Central St. Martins. Shola has also written for publications including ID and Another Magazine. So today you'll hear our interview with Shola, we'll talk more generally about luxury and literature, and finally we will give our usual book recommendations. So come indulge in literary friction. I like what you did there. Yeah, that was my most luxurious voice. It reminded me. Was it there? Well, it made me think of like galaxy chocolate adverts. Octavia, we're supposed to be resisting capitalism. What is this? (laughs) I'm talking about pleasure, baby. Come on. (laughs) Chocolate pleasure. I could use a chocolate bar right Uh, now. Me too. I could always use a chocolate bar. They're great, delicious things. Shola von Reinhold, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from Lote. Do you mind uh, setting it up for us and, and going ahead? Yeah. 
So this takes place actually a good way into the novel and the narrator has met a character that lives in the town called Dunn um, where she's doing a kind of residency and asks him to take her on a tour of the town. I demanded Erskine Lily take me on a tour of Dunn, something I'd never properly been given. At night, we swanned about the town, which had become more palatial, more of a pleasure ground than ever, amplified by Erskine Lily's painting of it as much as my own will to envisage it as such. He seemed to be an astute historian of the place and rendered a context so thrilling I wondered if he was making it all up. This was hard to tell, since it was as much a folkloric history as any other. In his company, the town, already a place of alternately consoling and faintly distressing beauty, became an extension of his flat, which in turn was an extension of his entire physical person persona. We visited the square with the grey obelisk. This obelisk is where the two so-called angels are said to have been chastised. The town is unnamed in the story, but it says in the Book of the Luxuries that the citizens sealed two winged beings within a pillar. Hermia, Stephen, and the other Lotos believed this was the very pillar and town. What certainly is true is that the book dates to around the early 16th century, and it's not unlikely a small number of people read and practiced its teachings, as was the case of numerous other contemporaneous mystical treatises. And, as you've gathered, Hermia and Stephen sought to re-establish this practice in their own way. There's a sort of allegory in the book. Have you managed to read any of it? I told him I didn't even know there was a translation. There isn't. I managed to get some bits translated. The person doing it lost interest. Then I had an academic, but I could only afford so many pages, including the sort of allegory. It's extremely charming. It follows a section on the nature of the luxuries. Where we consider angels to be spiritual messengers, we might well think of the luxuries as sensory ones, communicating with the ascetic aspects of the soul. They are described as having skin like black marble and party-coloured wings that far outstrip any peacock. They wear immensely gaudy-sounding robes, not unappealing, and outrageous jewel-encrusted slippers, tremendously appealing. The book also says that these same luxuries once came to the Lotophagi, the lotus eaters, and revealed the lotus fruit to them, showed them how to make wines from it, how to weave and carve innumerable delicacies from its other parts, ornament, jewellery, marquetry, and so on. When the lotus eaters beheld the luxuries, whose mouths were something like ruby, they also stained their nails and cheeks and lips that colour, with the juices of the lotus fruit and flower, varnish, rouge and lipstick, Matilda. Of course, everyone knows the lotus eaters from Homer. The book gives another account, saying when dull Odysseus looked upon all this, he was horrified. He could not distinguish man from woman. They insulted his sense of goodness, this effeminate people who loved nothing more than to dine upon the lotus and decorate endlessly, to lose themselves in the holy act of adornment, which the book calls volution. The voluptuacy is divine, the sinuous line, the serpentine line, the corolla, the curl, the twist, the whirl, the spiral, and so on, are all related in the volution, convolution, revolution. Volution is the inessential and irreducible aspect of ornamentation, just as the phoneme is the smallest irreducible unit of sound in language, locked into each coil, each curl of ornament, just like the coil and curl of your hair and my hair, darling, afro hair, as we call it, is the secret salvation of us all. Great. Thank you so much. There is a lot in this story, but I wanted to just ask you first about the genesis of it. What made you want to write about Matilda, who is that narrator we were hearing just now, and her fixation on Hermia Druitt, who was a part of this society that Erkson Lilly is talking about in the excerpt? 
one of the points of the novel's genesis came from reading and really, really loving, but eventually being able to properly escape into a sort of strand of, I guess, English prose fiction, which sort of, they, I'm thinking of like books like A Bride's Head Revisited, The Secret History, and maybe even like Isherwood, which all sort of share this romantic and Arcadian quality. And they're also all sort of written in first person, um, supposedly with an outsider narrator, even though their so-called outsider is always a white man. So he's sort of um, not that far out of the picture. But reading those and sort of finding a lot of sort of wonderful immersion, but eventually that the toll of escaping into those becoming more and more. And I guess so it was partly sort of written in answer to that experience and sort of a way of want I sort of wanted to claw back some of those devices which to me have been in in service of a certain a sort of very white and conservative, maybe less so in someone like Isherwood's case, but even still um a sort of conservative worldview and I wanted to try something where I was working with that same sort of escapism and immersion and romanticness and Arcadianness and sort of reclaim it for myself and within a black centered book and I'm sure it's been done before um, and I'm sure it's been written before but really hard to come by and really hard to locate as well for various reasons some of them very obvious. I tried to look up Hermia Druitt and she did not appear. And I, <laughs> so is she a figure that you've created for the, for the book? Yeah. Um, although okay, great. it didn't feel like that. I feel like Hermia materialized out of an ostensible vacuum and sort of emphasis on ostensible, uh, like British modernist history. And again, like in spite of like all of the elitism and the deep, deep pride, deprioritization of black women in the archive and in high modernism especially it seemed strange that we don't know of at least to my knowledge a black British woman working within the high sort of experimental modernist tradition because there were there was people like Una Marson the Jamaican poet who was living in Peckham at the time and then there was um, Elizabeth Welch the uh, amazing performer who was living in Mecklenburg Square at the same time as so many I think there's a book that's just come out um, about the women the mod sort of mod groups of modernist women that lived in that square and here was a black woman living that square. She was going to Soho bars. She was going to Bloomsbury parties. She knew Paul Robeson. She was friends with sort of the Chelsea artists. But w- within all of this, what I found strange was that there was no black British woman writing poetry of, of the kind that Hermia writes. And I feel like it seems to me that she did exist. Um, and it was inevitable that there was a black British woman writing that kind of poetry at the time. And it's either been quote unquote lost, or it's actually, you know, it's still out there, maybe there's somebody working on it right now. And, um, and I say that because since publication, sort of strange things have started to happen, like what's strange to me, <laughs> I got um, an email from a writer in Scotland called Jess Bruff, 
and it contained an article from 2015 by a scholar called Gemma Romain, who's done a lot of work around uh, Black Bloomsbury. And in the article, it's a description of sort of the Chelsea set, and it describes how this scholar has come across a... She's, she's going through the Tate archives, and she's found... She's looking at photographs of this group, and this photograph of this sort of... I think it's like a car, a motor car, sort of in a country lane, and it's a group of bright young people, and in the centre of the car, there's a an unidentified black woman. And the way that Gemma Romain sort of writes about the unknownness of this black figure and how she's she's sort of looking into it really reminded me of Hermia and then sort of one of the strangest things was that a modernist uh, scholar called Anna Gerling uh, emailed me an article about a black communist woman who knew Nancy Cunard who Hermia's friends with in the book and who sort of knew actually quite a, sort of encountered a lot of these figures um, and yet yeah, was part of this uh, really fascinating communist movement and is called Hermina, um, which I found just really, really Whoa. weird. Yeah, and it's like all of these versions of Hermia are sort of <laughs> materialising out of nowhere, but of course they've been there all the time and people have known about them, but I just found that really interesting, the way that, that it felt like she was materialising of a vacuum, but really she's there. This is the amazing thing about excavation, isn't it? Like it starts slowly, but then as a the momentum builds, suddenly more and more and more is revealed. And I love, love the way in this book you bring together like the imagination as a tool for excavation as much as like historical research. And like you say, like the way that when you're paying attention, you can start filling in the gaps to something in a way that actually then kind of tallies with history. I don't know, it feels mm. it feels kind of magical, but I wanted to ask you about the transfictions in the book that Matilda, your narrator, collects essentially and she kind of creates, I mean, to me, I imagine them as as like archive cards basically, but they're very yeah. kind of beautifully done, aren't they? When you were coming up with like, how did you choose which figures you were going to include as her transfictions and how yeah. do you relate to those figures yourself? I chose I just sort of took, went for figures that had interested me yeah especially when I was younger you know people like Stephen Tennant and then people that I've learned of later um, like Robert Oth the Negritude writer and a lot of them were like entry points into queerness and the first way I encountered queerness in literature or literary history or sort of artistic history but they also sort of as I was talking about before in relation to that escape sort of feeling like it comes at all a lot of the those early figures which were sort of queer lowstones for me um were incredibly white and incredibly posh as well but it sort of started to gravitate more to um more away from that and started to figure you know find people like Robert Roth and um, you know, various other sort of black historical figures who represented that uh, queerness and that on like an ornamental way of being, which I found initially really appealing. And then to discover all of that existed within black history was really important. I love the way this novel not only finds and brings out those figures, but is such a celebration of luxury and aestheticism and beauty and excess. And it really seemed to me that you were making an argument for the ways in which 
especially for people of color and queer people, engaging with pleasure and engaging with luxury can be a sort of radical act, especially when these figures have been so left out of literature and sort of the movements that celebrated those things. Do you agree with that? And is that one of the things you wanted to do? Yeah, no, um, very much so. Uh, Like Lot, I think for me was one sort of, well, one aspect of it was a way of working out questions about opulent and ornament and artifice. And it's interested in the function and also the happy functionlessness of these categories and also the distinctions between like typical capitalist luxury and excess which are actually often nowadays in a wrapped in a minimalist uh, form versus like disobedient forms of the ornamental which have been central to black and queer resistance and communities and art possibly forever and yes like thinking about how the the toolbox of good taste in this country, in Europe, in the West, really heavily, you know, it's full of tedious idioms about simplicity and honest good style, all of which like draw from these really, from neoclassical assertions about good taste. Um, you know, grandeur could only be masculine and it could only do this through har- linear harmony and simplicity and how that feeds into like later conceptions of invisible invisible style as good style or secreted style and all of this has all of these things have like really overt and cover colonial histories and to go even further even sort of leftist aesthetic histories replete with these con- these sort of colonial and patriarchal uh, connotations you know like ornament is literally criminal in according to Adolf Luz and criminal in a really racialized manner as well and like I think Lote references Josephine Baker and Adolf Luz and like the fact that Adolf Luz had designed this uh, sort of minimal semi-minimalist house for Josephine Baker and she chose instead to live in a turreted gargoyled chateau in the south of France and you know in this chateau she hid uh, refugees fleeing from the Nazis and did sort of many more radical things than Adolf Luz could have ever imagined her doing in his sort of striped linear house. You know, in that house, there was a glass, I think a glass bottom swimming pool in which she was supposed to dive and everyone below could sort of see her see her dive and he presumably envisaged himself as one of the guests in this house. And it's not just really like saying that you know that lampshade is so fabulous therefore is radical um but that <laughs> ornament's capacity for the radical is like compacted and compounded by its relation to gender to race to class to otherness so our show today is about luxury and it was so great to hear you talk about the difference between luxury in a sort of capitalist sense and luxury in in the sense that you want to explore in this book because that that was actually when we were talking about the theme we kept bumping into that because mm. every time you try to use a word that is a synonym of luxury or has something to do with like decadence or aestheticism it always has a kind of pejorative connotation in our society because our society is so capitalist and so puritanical and yeah. um and so I think it's really exciting to acknowledge that. But but also we were thinking about the kind of writing that our 
society sort of prizes and what luxurious writing might be and why maybe it's kind of out of fashion, but what was so refreshing for us about reading your book is that it seemed to me that not only were you engaging with the concept of luxury, but you were trying to kind of write in a luxurious style. And you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about style, because there does seem to be a certain amount of excess in 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 the sentence by sentence language of the book, but also in the sort of structural bones of the book itself. Mm, yeah, no, that, I think that's a really um, important point. Um, it's not just, it would, it would almost be a little bit hypocritical for it only to be uh, dealing in notions of, of art, artifice and ornament and um, the book's own conception of the idea of luxury um, as opposed to capitalist luxury. It would almost be a little bit hypocritical to just only work through that in a, in a, in a thematic way, which is also acknowledging the fact that there are all sorts of things which happen um, outside of the thematic, outside of idea, you know, the experiential, the things which are between uh, sensation and thought, which we are sort of unable to give voice to or articulate um, and trying to make something, you know, trying to make the text more material or engage in a materiality is is very much working with that. It's not, to me, it's not an essay. I would have written an essay if I just wanted to deal in the themes, not that essays actually can do all of that as well and um but you know the tradi- traditional idea of an essay just sort of giving sort of telepathically telegraphing idea like i wouldn't i had no interest in in doing that in a in a novel yeah well you really bring a such a strong sense of sensuality to it um and in those transfiction cards that we mentioned earlier i love the fact that you include on each one a sensation and they're mm. things like um, internal fumes or I noted aerated waters on powdered eyelids which I loved and made me think of like when it's 6 a.m and your makeup's coming off and <laughs> you know like when the powder gets in the lines on your eyelids all of that um, but it also made me think of synesthesia you know the condition where a person experiences letters shapes or names alongside a sensory perception like smell or color because it feels like in this book everything that your narrator experience comes with comes with another sense to it whether it's you know the physical sense or she's living in the kind of she's living in her reality and she's also living in her imagined space um and I wondered actually just to loop back to what you were saying right at the beginning of this conversation about how books like The Secret History and um Brideshead Revisited were places where you know you get that escape experience when you read them but as you said they they kind of take their toll I wondered do you want the reading experience of this book to be like that but to be generative rather than kind of taking away like did you hope that your readers will feel complete escape and transfiction in that way yeah I guess it would be (laughs) I'd love it if people uh, manage to achieve an escape and hopefully one which doesn't come with the same sort of um, stripping away which other books which I've experienced and enjoy and still enjoy and give me escape but I wanted I was really struggling to find um, an escape which didn't come at too high a cost Um, and yeah maybe even could be generative as well Um, I'd I'd absolutely love that Um, but you know 
also if it doesn't, if it only provides partial escape or only, um, or, you know, I guess it's that thing, whatever, so whatever you want to take, take from it, it's happy to take from it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's an incredibly generous book because you give us this archive, you know, so you, you, you already, it, it felt to me very much like it was written with a spirit of wanting to give rather than take, which is, makes, as a reader, makes it a really unique experience. I think actually that, that there's a lot of literature wants to take in some way, I think. And I, as you say, that's not always a bad thing. It can be very pleasurable experience as a reader, but it really struck me that this is a, that this is such a generous book. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you more about the um, the Dunn residency that Matilda goes on because I found that to be a great source of humor in this book and just a wonderful invention. So basically, Matilda is trying to get to this European town called Dunn, where she knew Hermia to to be at some point. Mm. Um, so she's so she can find out more. And the way she does it is she applies to this residency that she has no idea what the residency is about, but they accept her on it because she uses so much jargon in her application that it could sort of be for anything. And it turns out that that jargon was actually perfect for the residency that she ends up in, which is a sort of artistic response to um, this one theorist, but it's sort of the opposite of everything that Matilda wants to find and Hermia represents for her. It's, it's, they all follow this doctrine called thought art, which has to do with like negation of the self and destruction and, you know, like theory that's so dense that it's literally un- incomprehensible. And it's just such a hilarious portrait of um, like theory and academia, in addition to being this great place for, Matilda, this great sort of asthete to end up and sort of try to find her way through. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the genesis of the residency and and what you wanted to do. And was I, I was also thinking about like, was it fun for you to write about this place and these characters? Because it was so fun for me to read about it. I'm, so, yeah, I'm really glad that it was enjoyable to read rather than sort of <laughs> replicating the like an experience of that residency in itself. Um, <laughs> and I, so yeah, it was it was it was definitely uh, enjoyable to write the residency and all of the characters within it. And yeah, I think that was a really sort of nice unfolding of of what their residency is and what they're about or <laughs> not about. Um, and it's obviously got some relation to, you know, continental theory and other form, but, but in, in, in other ways not, it's more about the reception of that theory than the actual theorists, many of whom I've enjoyed and gotten a lot out of. Um, and, but, and yet also, I guess, a, a, a an intensification of the moments of ultimate stress you have not being able to understand something incredibly dense um making a whole residency out of that it's just it's also quite funny I was just reminded of like the fact that um a couple of people have been like oh my god I'd love to do that residency (laughs) 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 which I I kind of like yeah I kind of enjoy in the book there's a scene where they go to see 
um, an exhibition by a painter that everyone who's on the residency really hates um, called Anton Ammo, which who Matilda loves. And Ammo is kind of famous for saying that white people shouldn't paint. You know, it, it comes from this idea that somebody said painting was dead. And so it's terribly uncool to, to keep painting. And he was saying, OK, fine, white people stop painting and mm. let people of color explore in a medium that they were never allowed to to explore. And it, it kind of made me think about how this book is. I read it as both like looking back, but also looking back to look forward. I, I thought that was really exciting that it was sort of reclaiming something from the past and like finding things in the past. But in a way that felt really sort of hopeful and thinking about the future and and sort of taking something that's feels dead or something that white people have claimed isn't working anymore and actually sort of reviving it and giving it new life. And I mean, this book is, as, as Octavia said, it's sort of like, I learned a lot about uh, like moder- the modernist period, for instance. And I learned a lot about figures that I didn't know anything about. And I, I can see from a lot of the work that you've done, for instance, you wrote that great article in The Independent about why we don't know about these Black avant-garde artists. Um, and I wonder if you see your project in, in that way as well, sort of a wider project of finding things in the past to sort of rethink how we can move forward. Yeah, I really love that, like the way you related, like the Anton Amu idea of yeah, like white people saying painting is dead or the novel is dead or, um, you know, whatever, you know, whatever these, these other classical forms when um, various people have not been allowed that unimpeded exploration of these forms. Um, so, and yeah, I get that's like such a nice um, relation to the way that the book is interested in the reclamation or rediscovery or just um, enjoyment of these, you know, it could be just like the tiniest thing embedded in history, which has been discarded um, or thought of as, as ephemeral, which becomes revived and and all sorts of new interest and wonder can be found in it all of a sudden when you allow somebody else to to look at it or when somebody you know when a black person for example is engaging in these sort of aspects of history and um, the whole wealth of of uh, knowledge and experience spills out of something which is considered dead and in some ways yeah it's very um sort of concerned with the cracks in like the surface of european knowledge making epistemology is trying not to say <laughs> epistemology but yeah the cracks <laughs> in like that mass of like knowledge that that is like european epistemology it's it's really fascinated by that and it's also fascinated and sometimes what happens when you become too interested in the crack the cracks and not enough in like smashing it or even better turning away from it and looking at something else so there's like definitely a tacit conversation about that going on as well yeah i love the way you set up the arcadian versus the utopian project and personality right and there's matilda and her friend malachi who sort of represents she represents the arcadian he represents the utopian Mm. and i just i would love it if you would talk a little bit about those two modes of being and and what they mean to you yeah I'm trying to like remember where I first sort of came across them, but they, especially in relation to modernism, they actually sort of play out a lot through modernist literature. And I think that they're mentioned in like a poem by 
um, Auden, where there's a, bit, there's a bit that's like either Arcadian, you the Utopian, and he, he sets these up as personality types. Um, he doesn't call them that, but I, f- I feel like that's what they're sort of being uh, shown as. And the, you know, Utopianism, he aligns with a kind of progressiveness and with a a will to to also destroy old older things um in order to make way for a an imagine a new future whereas the the um arcadian has a, a much more sort of backward looking impulse one which is to do with borrowing but also is sort of accompanied by these ascetic uh concerns for preservation um so in some senses is quite uh, reactionary and conservative but actually in many other senses not arcadianism has this very queer history to it and another thing that Loit was responding to was a lot of these queer you know a lot of these writers who engage in Arcadian form like Denton Welch and like Brighthead again and Ronald Fairbank yeah all these modernists are all sort of white uh, gay men and that this kind of mode is often thought of as belonging to white gay men. It corresponds, Arcadianism corresponds a lot to what Susan Sontag uh, talks about in terms of camp. Um, yeah, so so Lote is, is very much about questioning that. Um, you know, I, I don't think that those, uh, that mode and all of those devices have, you know, stopped uh, stop there. And I don't even think they emerged there. So much of, so many of those, especially queer um, white men in the modernist period where, you know, there's a whole sort of um, hidden history of black queer people, you know, in London at, the, at that time who were these conduits for so much that was happening and were progenitors of so much of that romance and that Arcadianness. And I just think that actually Arcadianness could be, to me, is has got this also um, incredibly rich uh black history in terms of its relation to diaspora and and lost worlds as well you know in the way that one of the reasons i think the the idea of arcadianism sort of really rose in the modernist uh period obviously is because it had just been a war and there was this idea of a lost world and then it happened after the 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 next war too and you know people remembering uh the bright young things in weimar and etc 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 all of which were heavily um um, influenced by black culture in so many different ways and sort of literary ways and uh, musical ways and, you know, interpersonal relationship formations. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, I was just like, it's so clear that this idea of Arcadianism is not this sort of hideous, uh, conservative <laughs> way of seeing the world. Shola von Reinhold, it's been such a pleasure. Before we go, I want to ask you guys, are you Arcanians or Utopians? <laughs> Shola, you first. I think I, I mean, recently I've been feeling more Utopian than ever, but I mean, I've all, I guess I've always been an Arcadian at heart. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, I mean, and also like, yeah, the idea that maybe you could be like an Arcadian utopian or a utopian Arcadian as well. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I'm pure utopian. I used to be like essentially anti-history, which was, you know, I, a, a perspective I've grown out of. But I think, uh, I think I'm utopian, potentially sliding into utopian Arcadian in this stage of my life. 
mm-hmm. because it's time for like a deep re-education and, and that's coming into my Arcadian side. But yeah, by nature, totally utopian. What about you, Carrie yeah. Plitt? I mean, you won't be surprised to hear I'm a true Arcadian at heart, but uh, I think we're living in an age when it's impossible not to be a little utopian. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what I'm learning right now is how to be a utopian Arcadian. Or an Arcadian Utopian. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, thank you so much. It's been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely. This episode is sponsored by Picador. In recent years, there has been an appetite for the rediscovery of writers who didn't reach the audience they deserved in their lifetime, or who were lauded in their time, but whose work slid out of print and was lost to subsequent generations. Writers like Lucia Berlin, whose short story collection, A Manual for Cleaning Women, hit the New York Times bestseller list in 2015, nearly 40 years after they were first published. One such writer is Betty Howland, an almost forgotten great of 20th century American literature, whose writing is reminiscent of Laurie Moore, Lydia Davis, and Alice Munro. A protege of Saul Bellow, Howland was writing mainly throughout the 1970s, and her work has been described as honest, angry, profound, warm-hearted, and masterful. This month, Picador publishing Blue in Chicago, a collection of sharp, bittersweet stories set in Howland's native city, which restores to our bookshelves an extraordinarily gifted writer, who was recognised as a major talent before all but disappearing from public view. Blue in Chicago is available to buy at your local independent bookshop. You'll spot it because it has a beautiful duck egg blue cover with a photograph on it, and it looks like a Kraken book. It really does, and if it's anything like Laurie Moore, Lydia Davis, and Alice Munro, I am in. Same girl, same. Those are three big hitters. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is luxury. 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 How would you say it? I'd luxury. say luxury. Some people would even luxury. say luxury. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you like it? Yeah, I do like it. Um, I, would say, I would say luxury. Yeah, I would say luxury. Yeah. For me, it's like a sh. Well, luxury. Well, that was a great show discussion. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> <Ended> so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's about luxury. We're really excited to talk about it. And as I mentioned in our introduction, we don't mean luxury in the sense of rich people eating caviar and king-size hotel beds. And in fact, we want to resist and oppose that definition of luxury, which is something we talked a little bit about Shola. Instead, we want to talk about literature that engages with things like aestheticism, excess, and decadence. And we're especially interested in the reclamation of luxury and luxury as resistance in fiction. So let's talk about it. How is luxury resistance, Octavia? What do you think? Well, I think that the kind of axis of heteropatriarchal capitalism Oh, yes. You love it. <laughs> getting all of my pleasure <laughs> spots today. I do. I think the axis of heteropatriarchal capitalism is not pleasure, you know? It's productivity and it's I, it can be a very brutal system. And so I think anything that opposes that with pleasure and excess and opulence is doing something very necessary, you know? And I think like Shola mentioned when we spoke to them, 
those are things that have been feminized and what is feminized under patriarchy is denigrated. So if you're out there exploring these ways of presenting and these ways of living, you're doing something to counter that negative association with the feminized, which, you know, we're still all having to fight against daily under this system. And queer communities are doing it more than anyone else, essentially, I think, because they tend to be able to exist in true opposition to heteropatriarchal capitalism. Whereas if you are straight passing or straight, as even as a woman, you're having to engage with it more, um, which I think can compromise it. But I, I think it can be a, a truly powerful language of opposition. And it's one that is also fun, you know, it's full of the potential for joy as well. Um, and yeah. we could all do with a lot more of that right now. Yeah, it's so interesting because when we were thinking about what to call this show, we have, we eventually settled on luxury, but we we talked about other words like hedonism or decadence. And so many of those words have a pejorative con- connotation in our language. And it is, I think, that that sort of puritanical idea that if you're not working and being productive, and if you're seeking out pleasure for pleasure's sake, you're doing something wrong. And that's what I loved about Lote, that it was it was really thinking through that. And it's a it's a strand that also runs through queer literature, isn't it? Um, of course, when when you think about aestheticism, especially in art for art's sake and hedonism, you think about Oscar Wilde and and that whole movement. But there have been plenty artists before and and after Wilde who have been thinking in a kind of queer space and also thinking about beauty and pleasure and ways of celebrating and reclaiming this kind of thinking. Yeah, exactly. And stopping it being thinking that's literally associated with the decline of society. Like decadence means the crumbling, the falling apart. And the fact that that's a word that we associate also with luxury and excess and and pleasure, like excess is is always considered slightly, slightly negative as well. Whereas I think like maybe maximalism is a nice way a word we can use that has fewer negative connotations. I don't know. I think of max of maximalism as being terribly positive, but that that language of purity and that yeah that puritanical way of framing things it worms its way into so many corners of our language and our thinking. You know, one of the other things that we are thinking about. Okay, what does luxurious writing mean? I think we are living in an age that isn't really into maximalism. Um, as you say, you know, I think people love to talk about paired back prose and sparse prose. And I I think I'm guilty of that. I think sometimes I I prefer prose that, you know, gets rid of all of the adverbs, for instance. But of course, I think when you're thinking about luxurious writing, maybe that is something to think about and celebrate and sort of reclaim that kind of writing that resist uh, taking everything away that isn't strictly necessary. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think also, we should always be wary of any rules ever because who is implementing them? Who decided that Spartan prose was more accomplished than a more luxurious way of writing? It's bullshit. It's just different. And you can have your personal preference, but your personal preference is subjective. And I really resent the sense of objective goodness. It's all driven by trends. And when you remember the majority, like the foundation, in fact, of literary criticism in this country is white and it's male it's definitely not going to embrace the luxurious Um, and if you if you look into definitions of the word luxurious luxury is slightly different but luxurious one of its definitions is giving self-indulgent or sensual pleasure 
that has nothing to do with richness in terms of capitalist uh, success. It's to do with sensuality. Again, something that has always been feminized and has been denigrated by certain schools of thought. But why? Like, why would you cut yourself off from sensu- sensuality? Sensuality is such a glorious way to experience the world and to connect with you know and it's something that's available to all of us if we remember not to cut ourselves off from it and I think the kind of literature that I love is a literature that reintegrates that sensuality with the world and that doesn't necessarily mean florid prose all the time though I do have a lot of time for prose that is kind of over the top I can really enjoy it but it's more a sensibility it's a way of replicating the world like garth greenwell's prose for example is not uh florid but it's terribly terribly sensuous and i would say he writes Mm. in a very luxurious way because he takes the sensuous elements of life incredibly seriously you know sex feeling sensation all of that so so present in his work yeah i think that's a great point and i would say as a way of thinking into this it was helpful for me to to read a piece by ben masters in the new york times from from 2012 in which he argues this very thing that we're living in a time that really celebrates spare writing but actually it's it's worth thinking about maximalist writers, writers who write in excess and why that can be such a pleasurable reading experience. And he cites writers like Angela Carter, who I know you're a huge fan of, um, Virginia Woolf, who came up in our our discussion with Shola, Nabokov, Proust, those kinds of writers um, who, and I think often that, you know, they are writers who, as you say, celebrate the sort of sensual. They are often writers who really love language, who almost kind of can't seem to help themselves, which I always love, you know, this delight in the playfulness of words and the way words can be used with each other and just a sentence on a page and what it can do. Yeah, I agree. I was actually thinking about this because we, we've been talking about a lot of novelists, but I wonder if you think that luxurious writing is more permissible in poetry. I think it's more expected and perhaps there's more space for it because poetry is a language of imagery, right? A lot of the time. And I think because of the aestheticism that's folded into the idea of luxury, and I think also because poetry is so potentially free in its form, um, you can distill very specific elements, right? And very specific uh, chains of um, imagery and ways of building a world that are not constrained by linear prose. So there's kind of more space for what is very pejoratively called purple prose, you know, like very descriptive or sensuous kind of writing. But I I also think that there is just, yeah, sexism folded into all the distaste for it. And I I can't speak with much authority at all about the current world of poetry. You know, I'm, I'm someone who reads poetry and follows a lot of contemporary poets whose work I love. But that's it. I'm a complete, you know, I'm a punter, basically. But again, I feel like there has been a lot of distaste for that kind of writing in poetry for quite a long time, which I think is very, Mm. is a shame. And I think it's quite elitist. Um, And the poets whose work I really enjoy, you know, they are, they're doing quite kind of maximalist stuff, I think. And you love Dylan Thomas, who I think is love Dylan Thomas. Yeah, luxury. Such a luxurious writer. His worlds are so rich. You know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about books that celebrate luxury as a concept, and maybe as a way in, we can talk about something that Shola was talking about as well, which is these books in which "quote unquote" outsiders get um, sort of let in to 
glamorous, luxurious circles of people who we, the reader, and they, the character, might not have been usually able to access. And I think I think those books are about luxury in many sense and what luxury means and who's allowed access to it. I mean, and, um, you know, The Great Gatsby, Evelyn Waugh's novels, The Secret History, um, Crazy Rich Asians, I think, is a, is a sort of modern-day incarnation of that. And those are books that I think are kind of a critique of wealth and luxury, but they are also, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's impossible to make a war movie that doesn't glorify war in some way. I think it's also impossible to write a novel about rich people that doesn't glorify wealth in some way. I don't know how you feel about that. No, I feel the same way. I think it's really, really difficult. I was thinking about Patrick DeWitt as well, who we had on the show a while ago, who whose novel is really set in that kind of hyper-wealthy land. And again, I, I think he's very critical of it, but it also does sound kind of fabulous. Um, so yeah, I think it's hard. <laughs> but you know what else I thought of was Atessa Moshfeg's novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, where the world of wealth and luxury is presented as incredibly cold and empty. I think that's a novel where um, there's not much glorification going on at all, actually. Like you don't really read that and think, oh, I want that woman's life, you know? Yeah, but I, I mean, I do think The Great Gatsby is kind of an urtext here, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so much about opulence and luxury. And that's part of what's so fun about that book is reading about those parties. Yeah. Right? Also, Donna yeah. Tart writes so well about a particular kind of wealth like a slightly more declining wealth if you think about it in the secret history but also in the goldfinch that world of sort of upper east side flats that are you know very um fancy but it's kind of old school fancy which is very different from what we're talking about in terms of Mm. succession and I think she always gets a even if there's glorification going on, because come on, of course there is, especially in the secret history, she gets at the kind of poison at the heart of it really, really well, I think. And the fact that growing up in that kind of extreme wealth, it's not it's not great for a person and it certainly doesn't set them up to have positive interactions with the rest of the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about reading as luxury? Well... I immediately thought of the Audre Lorde quote, which I think is very familiar now to lots of people. It's been going around a lot, especially recently with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Poetry is not a luxury, which comes from her 1985 essay of the same name. And it's a really, it's a brilliant piece of writing, which if you haven't read yet, it's worth seeking out. She describes poetry as the revelation or distillation of experience, not the sterile wordplay that too often the white fathers distorted the word poetry to mean. And she really kind of nails it there that poetry, it is the way she conceives of it as opposed to something sterile, but not because it's decorative, because actually there's a real beauty in the revolutionary potential that being able to conjure something different, you know, has within it. And that poetry is an act of imagination and acts of imagination shouldn't be luxury. Like everyone should have the right to do that and the right to explore it. And I think that that, you know, that's an idea that's kind of at odds with the uh, with the sense of like reading in the 19th century term as, be, as you know, reading novel is a, a thing that you do in your luxury time that the bourgeois do and no one else can do because no one else has holidays and all that. Like, I think those are two quite interesting things to balance. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I, I, that just also made me think about how the aesthetic movement was so much based upon a rejection of the novel as a moral object right. which I think I think all of these things are related in some way yeah um and I'm not I need to 
work it out in an essay. But <laughs> <laughs> it writes it I, think, but I think the idea of luxury and literature gets to the heart of how we think about what the purpose of art is. Yeah. Isn't it? And maybe the way we're talking about luxury now, we can't afford just to talk about art for art's sake. I'm not I'm not sure. Well, I think yes, I I sort of agree, but I think we can talk about different modes of pleasure. And I think that there's the kind of pleasure that you can take in arts for art's sake, but there's also pleasure in revolution. There's pleasure in systemic change. And if we think about a way into luxury that's more about sensuality and pleasure and um, metaphysical riches than it is about, again, I'm wary of using these words because they've been hijacked in such a terribly puritanical way, but like a more frivolous idea of luxury, then I think it operates on different levels, you know? Mm. Yeah. What are our favorite books about luxury? What is your favorite book about luxury? What is my favorite book about luxury? Mine, um, I'm going to take the cue as stylistic. So I'm going to recommend Ariel by Sylvia Plath because I also wanted to talk a bit more about poetry here. But this book of poems had a huge impact on me when I first read it. I think I was about 16. And even then, it felt like it was trendy to be into much more Spartan language and literature. And I found reading Plath was this amazing tonic. There's something about the richness of her poetic landscape that I just felt understood by, you know, I felt I recognized myself in her world somehow. Um, and it's not that her poetic language is florid. It's more that the world is so rich with image images and there's something so generous about each of the poems because it's just giving you, you know, again, more, more, more every time. Um, I find reading them every time a really deeply sensual experience. Like this stanza from Morning Song, which is a poem about birth, all your night moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. It's just gorgeous. It is. I will confess that I read Sylvia Plath around the same time seeking that kind of meaning and uh, didn't really find it. But maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm ready for it now. Maybe I need to return. I just didn't get it. Just didn't appeal to me. It doesn't speak to age. everyone though. And that's totally fine, you know. Should I tell you about mine? I would love to hear about yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I am a sucker for books about outsiders that get drawn into luxurious or elite circles or families, um, much like Shola. And so I am going to talk about Alan Hollinghurst's The Line of Beauty. Oh, great book. It is a novel. It's the story of Nick who moves into the attic room of the family home of his wealthy university classmate in Notting Hill in the 1980s. The father of the family is a Tory MP and it's a really great novel about the UK in the 80s but it's also about sexuality, it's about insiders and outsiders and it is just also an excellent portrait of a world of luxury and decadence um, but sort of setting that alongside Nick's own obsession with beauty and aesthetic per perfection. I think, you know, thinking about different modes of luxuriousness mm -hmm. and how they come up against each other. Um, and it's also just a very engaging and sensual and sensuous novel um, in a way that I think reflects what we were talking about in terms of luxurious writing. I mean, Hollinghurst is so great on sex yeah. um, and and sexuality and I would really recommend this novel. It's a great book. Totally top recommendation there from Carrie Plett. <laughs> Thanks Octavia. <laughs> when will I see you? When will I see you? 
I'm Kerry Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and Shola von Reinhold to give our monthly book recommendations. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, so, Octavia, do you want to start? What book are you recommending this month? I would love to start. I am actually, I realize my recommendation this month kind of really works with the theme of, of luxury and anti-capitalism, which is a nice bonus. Um, it's called The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. And... Um, yeah, it's just a really great read. It's a novel that critiques the machinery of late neoliberalism, basically, and it uses a Ponzi scheme as a way of showing us the hubris of excessive greed and what happens when uh, a particular kind of really over-the-top wealth ultimately crumbles and who are the people who actually suffer, you know? Like, did Madoff suffer the most or did the people who gave him their life savings suffer the most sort of questions? Um, and the hotel of the title, which is just this wonderful setting for where all the action starts from, doesn't necessarily all happen there, but um, it's perched at the tip of Vancouver Island in Canada and it describes itself as wilderness adjacent, really getting into the idea of like the kind of luxury that thinks it can buy anything on its own terms. So like, you can experience the wilderness, but from the comfort of a five-star glass box, thank you very much. You know, you're not going to get your feet wet. And it's very, very caustic about that way of being in the world. But it's it's also about code switching and about how performance can really get you into places that you wouldn't expect and how a surface presentation of a particular kind can open doors for you. And she brings this really great idea that runs through the whole book of the, the idea of the world of money as a country of its own, which is kind of borderless and the rules are not that clear, but you you can feel them out by trying, basically. Yeah, it's great. And and basically the, the bottom line throughout the whole novel is like the world of luxury ha- of this kind of capitalism inflected l- luxury has zero integrity and like don't bother looking for it, you know? Anyway, it's a great read. Very, very highly recommend for, for, for these bizarre times. Sounds oh, amazing. great. Because, yeah, it sounds amazing. And I love Station Eleven. Um, Shola, what's your recommendation? So I'm going to recommend a um, biography by... Uh, Gemma Romain, who I'd just mentioned, um, so her research along with another scholar called Caroline Brezzi, um, into the, the Slade the Slade archives and other sort of art school archives, which uh, sort of uncovered sort of hundreds of images of Black and Asian people living in London between the war, studying in these in- institutions, um, and also coming to model, um, and that that. Um, was highly influential on Lot, and I actually didn't get to read this book um, whilst writing it, but I wish I had. And this is, uh, it's called Race, Sexuality and Identity in Britain and Jamaica, the biography of Patrick Nelson, 1916 to 1963. And um, I did I did just mention Patrick Nelson. He was a black Jamaican man who um, lived in, who moved to London in the, in the, mid to late 30s and was the lover of the Bloomsbury group artist uh, Duncan Grant and also was an artist model and it's um, just got a really vital and amazing bit where it sort of explores um, interwar uh, Bloomsbury and uh, Fitzrovia which is described by one of the sort of uh, moderns at the time as being like um, Paris in terms of its uh, sort of multi-ethnic uh, demographic um, but at the same time it, this book sort of is clear that this wasn't a um, you know multicultural hub or, or haven um, in, in you know these people were 
really sort of experiencing horrible uh, things, violence, struggle getting accommodation, just about everything really. But this, and it's, this is so beautifully written and it sort of goes into the gay nightlife and sort of gives you the, that feeling of how geographically close, um, you know, things like the gay clubs were to, you know, uh, clubs owned and all sort of ran by black people and how there were overlaps between this and sort of wonderful documents where she'll go and look at sort of police reports of wh- one of these gay clubs and you know, describes the police officers describing this sort of effeminate um, black gay man you know in this sort of derived sort of um, denigrating way and I'm just like oh my god this sounds <laughs> so wonderful what a beautiful vision but also incredibly sad in fact it's coming from the perspective of a a police officer and yeah i just think it's a really amazing book and i hear that she's writing another biography on uh, berto pasuka who was another you know who was friends of jack uh, uh, patrick nelson was an artist model founded this ballet in london and yeah and just incredibly excited to know more about him wonderful that sounds great yeah it sounds Um, like a brilliant read so I am going to recommend a novel called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. This is Bennett's second novel, but the first to be published in the UK. And it was published by Dialogue Books here um, pretty recently, I think a week or two ago. And it's one of the most absorbing books I've read in a while. I read it, I was on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and it was absolutely pouring, like to the point where it wasn't even worth going outside. But it was wonderful because I just read this book in a single day. Um, and it really, it it felt like it was one sitting. I mean, I think I did probably get up to do some stuff, but you know, that, that just like totally absorbing reading experience. It is the story of twin sisters who grow up in a small black community in 1950s Louisiana, but whose lives take very different paths when one returns to the community um, after leaving and living in Washington, D.C., along with her daughter, while the other decides to pass secretly as white, marries a white man, um, and her family doesn't know anything about her history. So these two identical twins living completely different lives from each other. And it follows their children as well. It spans like states and generations and a, and a huge time period. And yet it's so deftly done that it doesn't feel like it's taking in all of these things you know it it feels super ambitious but it never feels heavy it just feels like a delight to read Um, and it's thinking about themes like racism gender class family ties but again it's the kind of writing that lets these themes come out of these beautifully drawn characters and their stories and I just I felt like I needed this novel and I loved it so much and I would really heartily recommend it to anyone it sounds amazing I've heard such good things about it yeah I want to get my hands on it um a friend said this to me actually that you could you would recommend to your mom but you would also recommend it to your like younger cool sister um and and that would still and they would both love it you know it, it feels like it's for everyone as as all novels are always but this one especially yeah that sounds exquisite That's all the time we have for today. 
thanks to our interviewee, Shola von Reinhold, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you, so please drop us a line. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. You better hide. You better run. Freak storm comes. Freak storm comes. You better hide. You better run. Live your life.